Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. How do we know what's real? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. As long as humans have been around, we've been asking some version of this question. You find it in nearly all of the world's great philosophical traditions, from the West to the East, from Buddha to Confucius to Plato and Descartes. What should be a very simple question turns out to be one of the hardest to answer. And it's even harder today because the world has become much more complicated. On the one hand, we all have a pretty decent idea of what's real in our own lives. Whatever we can see, feel, or touch seems real. Our experiences, our thoughts, our relationships, they all seem real. But sometimes our senses can deceive us. So how do we really know? And what about the virtual world? Is that real? Imagine you're wearing augmented reality glasses while strolling in a park. You see the benches, the trees, and fountains that anyone would see. But you also see a Pokemon scurry across your field of view. Or a digital warrior brandish a sword to fight you. It's not quite an illusion. I mean, you're not hallucinating. But are those digital creatures real? My guest today is David Chalmers, a pioneering philosopher at NYU who has done groundbreaking work in the study of mind and consciousness. Chalmers has a new book out called Reality Plus, and it's a wondrous tour through the philosophical history of my opening question. In the book, he argues that virtual realities are genuine realities. And in a world where more and more of our lives are playing out in a huge, fragmented virtual space, this is not just an abstract question. It really matters because we're all experiencing many different realities online, and when they don't line up, what then? Can something be real if it's not accessible to other people? So I invited Chalmers onto the show to talk all this through. We discuss little things like the nature of reality, why he thinks we can live a meaningful life in the virtual world, whether we might actually be living in a computer simulation, and why I'm so worried about a VR dystopia. So grab your bongs, hit the black light, find your coziest cushion, and let's just go full late night college dorm here. David Chalmers, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. 
Well, look, let's just dive right in to the light stuff here. And I'll start by asking you, obviously, a very simple question. What is reality? You seem to think if we're not exactly confused about what's real, we're at least confused about the difference between real and unreal. Yeah, I mean, despite calling my book Reality Plus, I'm still not entirely sure what the word reality is uh, meant to mean. I mean, in one, at least there's many different meanings for the word, and philosophers love to make these distinctions. So I guess on one meaning, reality is just everything that exists. It's the entire cosmos. Reality is whatever there is and nothing else. Then in that sense, reality is like, okay, the cosmos. But then you can also talk about realities. You know, we talk about virtual realities, physical realities, and so on. And then part of the theme of this book is that reality may be made up of many different realities, mm. physical realities, virtual realities. Then I guess a reality is more like maybe a space, like an interconnected space of goings-on that interact with each other in the right way. And then reality in the sense of all that is might be made up of many of those different realities. But then I think maybe the third and maybe the thing you're getting at the most in this question is, what is it to be real? In that sense, reality is something like realness, the property of being real. Some things are real, some things aren't. They're just like fiction. So it's like, yeah, Joe Biden is real. Santa Claus, alas, is, you know, maybe just a fiction, not Whoa, real. Slow down, slow down there. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so yeah, so what is the difference between being real and not being real here? I, I think maybe one key difference is Something is real if it has causal powers, if it can make a difference in the world. Another thing that I think matters a lot to us is if something is all in our mind, then we think of it as not being fully real. So if something is outside the mind, independent of the mind, affecting us, that's a criterion for being real. And maybe the other most important one is not being an illusion. Things being roughly the way we think they are. If I have an experience as of, I don't know, a, uh, a pink elephant, in front of me, and there's no pink elephant there, then we'd say, okay, that's an illusion. And you know, if that was like how it was for all of our life, that we were experiencing all of this around us, and none of it was there, then we'd say, that's an illusion. So yeah, maybe those three, causal powers, independence of the mind, and not being an illusion. Maybe those are the three most important things for being real for me. God, I'm so excited by all the potential roads we could go down here. I can barely contain myself, but I'm going to I'm going to try to stay on the tracks, as it were. And, you know, the beginning of your book is a kind of compressed history, a compressed philosophical history of this very old question about the nature of reality, about you know, what is real. And you go from religion to literature to science and pop culture. Why do we still not seem to have a very good answer to this question? I mean, on the surface, it ought to be the simplest question we can ask, right? What is real? Well, there's so many different questions that you ask uh, when you ask what is real, you know, what things are actually real that are out there. Well, that's partly a, a question for science, you know, cosmology and physics and everything else to figure out what is there actually in the universe. I mean, in a way, the philosophical question isn't just what is real, but what is it to be real? What kind of thing counts as real? And furthermore, when it comes to um, some of these weird scenarios, like a virtual reality, for example, does that actually have the properties to count as real or is it fake or illusory? So I think some of these questions are, you know, old questions and new guises that come up in 
thinking about modern technology. But you're right that the old questions we never quite settled. Uh, Descartes said, you know, how do you know that you're not being fooled by an evil demon who could be playing with your mind right now? Also said, how do you know you're not dreaming? And he basically assumed that if it's a dream, it's not real. If it's an evil demon playing with your mind, it's not real. And I'm sure he would have said, if it's a virtual reality, it's not real. And that's almost the orthodox answer to these questions. But I think this is a case where orthodoxy may actually be be getting it wrong. And I want to argue that you know virtual realities are more real than we think. Even Descartes' scenarios may have had an element of reality to them. Well, let's talk about the virtual world then. Because yeah, I think most people would say, and I guess I would include myself in this camp, though, reading through your book, you know, I'm starting to question some of this. But I think most people would assume that the virtual world, the online world, the gaming world, all of it, is less real, air quotes, than the physical world. That it's a second-class reality compared to the material physical world. Do you think that's wrong or misleading or too simple? I don't know. And I do think to some extent this could be generational. As you know, people yeah. in my generation, I'm in my 50s, are much more inclined to count digital worlds as second class and not fully real, whereas, uh, you know, people born in the last 20 years or so are basically digital natives who are used to hanging out in digital realities. And from their perspective, I've found it's often much more natural to count, uh, you know, digital worlds and the virtual worlds that they've been interacting with as full-scale aspects of reality. I mean, there's some sense in which they're, I wouldn't want to say second class, but maybe second level. We all acknowledge there's a physical reality, and then there are these virtual realities which are created within the physical reality, and to some extent depend on the second reality. So I'd say they're second level realities. And it's also true, we say things all the time like IRL in real life, and so on, to draw the distinction between physical reality and virtual realities. But I guess I would maybe draw that distinction as something like the original reality and the derivative reality mm. versus real versus unreal. Well, why do you think it was important to make an argument that the virtual world, if not quite as important or whatever as the physical world, is every bit as real or every bit as meaningful? Why do you think it was important to explore that and to make that case? Oh, well, I guess for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think philosophically, just in terms of fairly traditional philosophical questions, this helps us to think about the relationship between the mind and reality. You know, what can we know about the external world? Descartes had these famous arguments that said, not so much, maybe we're in a simulation and none of this is really happening. And I came to think, oh, maybe we've got to rethink the relationship between the mind and reality so that, yeah, simulations are more real than we might have thought. So part of that was traditional philosophy, but also it just became increasingly clear that these are actually very, are going to be very pressing, practical questions in the, uh, in the next few decades. You know, virtual reality technology is here. If primitive, people are becoming obsessed by you know, the idea of a metaverse in which we're going to be spending increasing amounts of our time. And then I think it's, you know, it's just really important to think philosophically about that. What kind of a life can you actually have in a metaverse? Can you live a, a meaningful life there? Some people think it's by its very nature, it's only ever going to be escapism yeah. or a fiction or an illusion, not on a par with real life. Whereas if I'm right about this, the virtual reality is genuine reality, then you can at least in principle lead a, uh, a meaningful life in a virtual world. And I think this really matters. 
Something I do want to ask, because you just used the word meaningful, and I'm wondering when we're talking about kind of the differences between the virtual world and the physical world and whether one is more or less real than the other, there's no question that what happens in the virtual world can be meaningful. I think sometimes the word meaningful gets used interchangeably with the word real. Can something be meaningful without being real at the same time? And if something is meaningful, despite not being real, is it every bit as consequential or as important? I mean, certainly there are meaningful things that are not real. Uh, the characters in The Lord of the Rings are very meaningful to many people, even though they're fictional. You might say, well, it's just the book that's meaningful, not the characters, but Santa Claus is, yeah, meaningful to so many kids. So I don't think reality and meaningfulness are exactly the same thing. At the same time, I think maybe there are limits to the meaning and value of things which are not real. Beings that actually do things in the world have a kind of prospect for certain kinds of meaning in their life, meanings that derive from their actions that doesn't really happen to the same extent with fiction. So yeah, maybe rather than making it a meaningfulness versus meaninglessness dichotomy, maybe we could talk about differences in meaning. And yeah, we all get certain kinds of value from, say, engaging with fiction. But still, if that was the only value we got, say, from a virtual world, the kind of value we got from reading a book or watching a movie, you'd say that would be a very limited kind of value or meaning compared to the kind of value or meaning you get from a whole life. And if VR was always just an illusion, maybe it would be limited in that way. But I want to argue it's not an illusion, it's real, and that's part of what allows it to have the full scale of meaning you can get in a real life. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of where I run into some frustrations with some of my you know, kind of more materialist, atheistic friends, and I'm still kind of both of those things. But when you get into some of these debates about something like religion, right, we're having this conversation, a very empiricist conversation about whether like a certain proposition or a certain belief is true or real almost seems beside the point to me, right? If, if believing in a certain proposition or believing in a certain story becomes a kind of motive force, if believing in something makes something else in the world possible, if it creates a community, or create something in the world, or make something in the world possible because of that belief. Is it less real? Is it just as real? Is it true? I mean, I'm myself an atheist, so I think you know when most people believe in gods, it's probably what they believe in. The entity they believe in may not be real. At the same time, this also structures their lives in all kinds of ways, which are very important. It makes them part of communities. It gives them new forms of expressions, religions typically come along with ethical guidelines, ways to live your life, and all that may be perfectly real. So, you know, religion gives us all kinds of examples of cases where belief in something that is not real can nonetheless give rise to practices and emotions and attitudes that are perfectly real. I don't know, what's that line from Morpheus in the original Matrix? What is real? What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. This is the world that you know. I mean, is that a gross simplification or is that kind of correct? Is that true? Is that what real is? Well, I read Morpheus in that passage as kind of running a kind of a version of philosophical idealism that says, ah, what's real is just <laughs> what's in your head. Yeah. If you experience it as real, then it's real. And I'm a little bit reluctant to get on board with something as strong as that, because I do think it is possible for people to be deceived or under full-scale illusions. I do think there's more to reality 
than what's in our mind. But on the other hand, what's in our mind matters too. Um, there's this great line in I think, one of the Harry Potter novels towards the end where Harry says something like, Professor, is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? I guess I would go for an intermediate view here, that reality very often comes from the interaction between what's in your head, the conscious experience of reality, and what's going on in the external world. It requires something outside our minds, but it also requires our minds to invest that with meaning. And that's where we get the kinds of reality and meaningfulness that we really value. Reality is independent of us, but invested with meaning by us. This is making me think of the role of fictions or illusions in our everyday lives. Almost everything of consequence in the human world, I mean, what Nietzsche famously called our indispensable eras, is constructed. It is made up. Money, morality, the law, our personal identities, the state. But what makes those things real is their mutual interdependence. They're real because they're shared. They're real because they're collectively affirmed. They're real because we keep waking up and believing in them. So are those things less real than trees or mountains, or is it just a different category of reality? Yeah, I think most of the things that we count as real get their significance from an interaction between the mind and the external world. I mean, I think there is a world out there independently of the mind, but our mind, in a way, invests it all with meaning. You know, money is basically just a bunch of paper until, uh, or a bunch of bits of metal or a bunch of records of computer code until people choose to invest that with meaning and take a certain attitude toward it that invests it with the meaning as money. But I wouldn't want to say that money is necessarily less real because it's the result of this interaction. But I think this is actually important when it comes to thinking about virtual reality. Because once you recognize the role that the mind plays in investing things with meaning and with reality, well, I think we can invest virtual things with meaning just as much as one can invest physical things with meaning. Yeah. You know, you say that we should think of virtual reality not as an illusion of physical events in physical space, but rather as real events happening in virtual space. Why does that distinction matter? Because I do think there's a difference between physical space and virtual space. These are very different kinds of spaces. One is virtual spaces are basically digital spaces existing as computational processes inside some kind of computer. Whereas our ordinary physical space could be something like that if it turned out that we were ourselves in a computer simulation. But short of that, it's not like that. So there's a distinction worth marking. And I think people who go back and forth between physical realities and virtual realities very naturally mark this distinction. It's like, okay, now I'm in physical space. Now I'm in virtual space. Normally, you, can, you automatically have a sense of which one you're in. Even if you're using mixed realities, maybe glasses that project virtual objects out there into physical space, you want to have a sense of what's virtual and what's physical. So I think we very naturally, even just as part of our automatic perception of the world, at least as you know, expert users of virtual reality technology, perceive some things as being virtual and some things as being physical. If we were to perceive a, a virtual object as being a physical object out there in physical space, that would actually be some kind of illusion on my view. But I think that's not the standard case with VR technology. 
we tentatively perceive the virtual things as virtual in virtual spaces, and we perceive the physical things as physical in physical spaces. Why is that, you think? Is that just our natural intuitions? or? I think it's important to us, for whatever reasons, to know what kind of world we're interacting with at a given time, at least now, at this moment in time, we can do very, very different things in virtual worlds and physical worlds. You know, you can walk right through an object in virtual reality, it's no problem. But if you try and walk through someone in physical space, well, you'll get in a lot of trouble. So it's an important distinction to mark. And I think furthermore, right now, there are so many signs that you're in, in a virtual world. You know, things are a bit cartoonish and so on, and the quality is lower grade. So it's not very hard to make that distinction. One thing that's interesting is going to be once we have more and more sophisticated VR that becomes indistinguishable from ordinary physical reality, at least much of the time, I suspect we're still going to want some way of marking when something is virtual, so people know. It's just somehow it's more comfortable to know which of these spaces you're in. Maybe in the very long term, we'll transition between all of these technologies in a way where we don't care much of the time. But I think in the short term, we want to know. A lot of your previous work is about consciousness, mm -hmm. its relationship to the physical world, including our brains and how we can understand it. And you became you know, somewhat famous, certainly in the academic world, for diagnosing what you call the hard problem of consciousness. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, what I call the hard problem of consciousness is basically the problem of how is it that physical processes can give rise to the subjective experience of the mind and of the world. So, you know, when we think and perceive, say when we perceive, you know, some uh, photons hit our eyes and signals get sent to the brain and there's processing in the visual cortex, ultimately leading to some behavior and maybe a report, hey, there's a red apple. That's all the objective processes. But at the same time, there's a subjective experience. There's something it feels like from the inside to perceive that red apple. There's something it's like to be me while I'm perceiving. That's consciousness. That's what I call consciousness or subjective experience. And the question is, why is there consciousness there at all? Why couldn't all these objective physical processes just go on entirely in the absence of consciousness as some kind of automaton or robot or zombie, as philosophers sometimes call them, where a zombie here would be a being that did all this stuff without any subjective experience. That's just kind of one way of raising this question. Of, you know, we want an explanation. We've explained so many things in terms of physical processes. Physics explains chemistry, explains biology, and so on. But uh, how can we use all that to explain subjective experience? For various reasons. I mean, there are the so-called easy problems of consciousness which are problems of explaining, say, behavior. How do we walk? How do we talk? How do we point to things? How do we talk about them? And so on. And for those, there's a fairly straightforward program for spelling out physical mechanisms that will explain how we do those things. But the problem of consciousness isn't so much a problem of how we do certain things. It's rather how we experience certain things. It's a problem of how things feel. And at least right now, to many, probably to most people, I think still, it just seems there's a gap yeah. in our understanding. What stories about the brain are going to tell you is stories about how the brain does various things, but it doesn't yet give you any kind of story about how we experience things. Right. And this is all you know, connected to these questions about what's real. I mean, if we don't really understand how the brain produces the mind, do we even know what the mind is? I mean, how do we know the mind? How do we know our sense of self really isn't an illusion born of confusion about 
our own subjective experience and our own relationship to the world. Yeah, it is possible. You know, I mean, Descartes entertained the idea that the physical world is an illusion. Maybe nothing out there in the physical world is real. But he held on strongly to certainty about the internal world. He said, you know, I know right. that I think, uh, I know that I'm thinking now, and if I'm thinking, then I must exist. I think, therefore, I am. So, he said, so I can be certain, at least, that I exist and that I am thinking. But yeah, in recent years, a number of people have begun to see if they can stretch Descartes' skepticism to the internal world as well. I mean, in a way, this is a very ancient idea. It goes back to you know, the Buddhist tradition. The very central element is being skeptical about whether there is such a thing as a self. Yeah. Interestingly, the Buddhists are not skeptical about consciousness. They think there's conscious experience, but they still think maybe there's no self underlying it. In recent years, people have begun even to stretch this to an even deeper skepticism about conscious experience. Maybe none of us actually are having conscious experiences of the world around us at all. That's just an illusion. Somehow we think we're having these special conscious experiences, but hey, none of that is really going on. How would we know if we weren't? I don't know. I guess I would say that from the outside, I can't know that you aren't. I can't be certain that you are not a zombie who lacks consciousness. But I guess I would say from the first person perspective, in my own case, I'm simply acquainted with my consciousness. You know, it's the most real thing in the world. And it's basically part of my ver the very basic data of my existence. But, you know, I do take seriously the view that says, hey, wouldn't a zombie say just the same thing? And uh, <laughs> use that to cast doubt on the, on the whole thing. Chalmers' view that virtual realities are real is a bit counterintuitive. I'm used to thinking of reality as something that is objective, shared, and not just in my own mind. But, in his view, how exactly do we distinguish between subjective experience and what's really out there? That's what I'll ask him after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How do you distinguish truths about the physical world from the realities of subjective experience? Like, is something true in some meaningful sense if it only occurs in our own private mind? Or is something real if we can experience it in some virtual space, even though others may not have access to that space? Is it real nevertheless? 
Yes, sometimes people use intersubjectivity as a criterion for reality. Something has to be experienceable by multiple people. I've always been a little bit skeptical about taking that as a criterion for reality, not least because I think, yeah, one case, my own consciousness, yeah. I think, is perfectly real, whether or not anybody else can observe it directly, and likewise for uh, other people's consciousness. In fact, I think there could be things which are real even though nobody ever experiences them, things that go on inside a black hole or in the early universe, maybe not available to anybody. I'd say, in principle, those things could be real. So I don't think I'd want to build that in to the virtual case either. But nonetheless, I'd say that one of the things that at least is very strong evidence that uh, virtual objects have a kind of reality is that they affect our perceptions. We, uh, we perceive them, we can manipulate. Manipulating a virtual object will in turn manipulate what we perceive. So they have effects on us. And having effects on us, I think, is one important way of being real. Well, an hallucination has an effect on us, certainly psychologically, certainly emotionally, and even physically. What makes that less real or real in some different sense than, you know, driving a truck into a brick wall? Yeah, I guess well, one thing about hallucinations, like uh, the kinds you get in you know, mental disorders, at least, is that they tend to be internally generated. The source is something inside the mind. So yeah, there is something real that's happening, but only something which is real inside the mind. And I think what we're really concerned with in a lot of these cases is, is there some mind-independent reality. So in physical reality, we want to think, okay, when you see a real elephant, yeah, there's an elephant outside your mind that brings that about. Um, and likewise, I would say when you experience a virtual world, there's also a reality outside your mind, maybe a digital reality existing on a computer, but still something outside you that's bringing about these experiences inside you. So that's a very important difference between at least the kind of hallucinations you get in mental disorders and both physical and virtual reality. I mean, there's so many different cases here. You can get hallucinations which are generated by things outside of you. But even then, I would argue in that, in that case, what's going on outside your mind is a mismatch with what's going on inside your mind. And that also really matters too. And that gets us back to the criterion about reality as not being an illusion. Well, something you've alluded to a couple of times is the simulation hypothesis, right? This idea that maybe our entire world is a simulation, you know, on some alien supercomputer or something like that. And, you know, the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom, who I'm sure you're familiar with, has famously argued that at least one of three things is true. One, all human-like civilizations in the universe go extinct before they develop the technological capacity to create simulated realities. Two, if any civilizations do reach this phase of technological maturity, none of them will run simulations. Or three, advanced civilizations would have the ability to create many, many simulations. And that means there are almost certainly far more simulated worlds than non-simulated worlds. Which of those is most plausible to you? Yeah, um, I'm sympathetic with the spirit of Bostrom's argument, although not with the letter. and not. I think the particular way that he divides it up into three alternatives is somewhat arbitrary. The real core of the argument is that you know, if there are many simulations of beings like me, then most beings like me are going to be simulated. And if most beings like me are simulated, then I'm probably in a simulation. So uh, that basically tells us if you take that seriously, that tells you either I'm probably in a simulation or 
there's something that's happened to stop it being the case that most beings like me are simulated. And you know, the basic idea is that simulation technology ought to make it possible and easy eventually to produce many simulations with conscious beings like me. But then various things could go wrong to stop that. And Bostrom mentions two of them. Two things that could stop that from happening are, yeah, we all die off before we get to creating simulations or we choose not to create simulations. I actually think there are other possibilities there too. We also ought to take seriously the possibility that creating conscious simulations of beings like me is impossible because, for example, simulated consciousness is impossible. I actually think simulated consciousness is possible, but I take seriously the prospect that it's not, or that having a full-scale simulation of a physical world like this is impossible. So I think there are various things that could go wrong. In the, uh, in the book, I basically break it down into a different three possibilities. One is that conscious human-like simulations are impossible. And second is that, yeah, they're possible, but for various reasons, most intelligent beings won't end up creating them. And I don't know, what I say in, in the book is that, yeah, each of those is possible, but probably no more than 50% likely. So if I give 50% chance that conscious human-like simulations are possible, and 50% chance that they actually will be created in a widespread way, that gets us to at least a 25% chance that there are many simulations of conscious beings like me that are themselves conscious. And then from there, I think that gives you a 25% chance of we are probably in a simulation. So yeah, I guess that's where I got to in the book. It's at least 25% likely. Well, what's the best, I mean, that all feels so arbitrary. I mean, yeah, it is, of course. What's the best case that we are living in a simulation? How would we know it if we were? Would it even matter, really? It's interesting. I mean, there's different kinds of simulations. There's the so-called perfect simulation where the simulation is so good that it will always be indistinguishable from physical reality. If we're in a perfect simulation, we may never be able to know that. On the other hand, we could be in an imperfect simulation with glitches, with black cats crossing our path, where maybe you put too much strain on the simulation that uh, it breaks down. Maybe the simulators communicate with us. I mean, if they wanted to, they could give us very good evidence. They could uh, take the Empire State Building and turn it upside down in the sky and say, here, look at the source code I'm manipulating now. They could give us evidence that we're in a simulation, but I think we'll never get decisive evidence that we're not in a simulation because we could always be in a perfect simulation where that evidence is simulated. But yeah, that gets to the second question of, of would it matter? And I guess my view is simulated realities are realities too. Yeah, it could be that we're in such a simulation right now. If so, if we discover this, you know, it would be shocking for a moment. You know, we take some time to get used to it, but then at a certain point, life goes on. So uh, <laughs> likewise, if that's going on unbeknownst to us, right now, then I think that doesn't somehow rob our lives of meaning. Our lives are just as meaningful as they were before. I mean, how do I know I'm not talking to a simulated person about his simulated book about simulated worlds? I mean, I, I guess it's possible, but at some point, these sorts of unanswerable questions, I think, just have to get brushed aside and you just have to, you know, get out of bed and get on with it, right? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> So I'm not recommending that every, say, uh, world leader get on top of the simulation hypothesis now because, hey, we could be in one. I'm interested philosophically in thinking about abstract possibilities, whether or not we can scientifically demonstrate them. But also, I think there is a kind of practical relevance. I mean, at least for me, thinking about this simulation hypothesis and its status as reality 
actually had consequences for thinking about much more realistic kinds of virtual reality technology, the kind which is coming right now. And it was actually, I started by thinking about these matrix-like simulation scenarios, which are science fiction, then came to the view that these are, in a certain sense, real. And that led me to this consequence that even with realistic virtual reality technology, these are still real objects. You can still lead a, a meaningful life. So that's, I guess, a case where starting with something fairly outlandish can actually sometimes lead you in, in practical directions. It's interesting you just mentioned The Matrix and the new Matrix film just came out two or three weeks ago. And while I don't officially acknowledge that any of the sequels happened, <laughs> um, but the original film that in 1999 was a, you know, a cultural event and something that really seeped into our collective consciousness in a way that very few works of art do. I'm not sure what you think The Matrix gets right about reality or the sorts of questions it poses that are truly philosophically interesting. Did you see the new film? I did. Okay. The, the latest one adds a new virtual reality layer to the old virtual reality story. What did you make of that move? Well, I was very excited because, yeah, the first Matrix movie is such a, it's a classic philosophical text. Yeah. By now, it's just a wonderful illustration of this idea that the world could be a simulation. And if so, is it real? Could we escape it? What does it all mean? I mean, I use it in all my introduction to philosophy classes because yeah. just students instantly get on to this scenario as a way of illustrating so many deep philosophical ideas. It's the new Plato's you know, cave allegory. Exactly, yeah. You find this in so many different traditions. Plato had the cave. Zhuangzi in Chinese philosophy had the butterfly. We don't know if the butterfly is dreaming he's Zhuangzi or Zhuangzi is dreaming he's a butterfly. It's everywhere. But the Matrix just does it beautifully. And yeah, some of the questions like arising from the first movie, you think, okay, it's very natural to think. It looked like they were in a simulation. They escaped to the physical world, but did they really? Maybe the physical world itself is a simulation. Maybe the original Matrix was the physical world and the so-called physical world they escaped to. Maybe that was a simulation. Maybe the red pill just gives them amazing drug-induced hallucinations. So all these questions run very deep. And then in the sequels, they kind of abandoned them, those questions. At least they weren't front and center. So yeah, there was a brief moment at the beginning of this fourth movie. Okay, quick spoiler alert here for The Matrix Resurrections. You may want to skip ahead 30 seconds if you haven't seen it yet. Where suddenly we think we're going to be presented with a simulation within a simulation idea. What made Matrix different? Get after with your head. On point. People want us up in their gray space, switching their synaptic WTF light on. There's a Matrix video game, which is running within the Matrix. There's even a modal, an offshoot simulation of the Matrix video game, which is also running there. So we've got this prospect of simulations within simulations within simulations. And yeah, the viewer is at least briefly led to wonder, could we be taking seriously the question that we're now in that video game? It does at least raise that idea. And then the thought was, if we are in a video game, would that render all this meaningless? Here, actually, another recent movie becomes relevant. I don't know if you've seen Free Guy. Mm -mm. That's a movie that came out mid 2021, and it was about people who turn out to be non-player characters in a video game world. They're basically the people who, you know, the bank tellers and so on, who come, the human players come in and shoot them up, and they're basically the non-player characters in a video game world. You know, around here, the Matrix would then go and say, all oh, this is an illusion, it's not real. But uh, the free guy attitude is, no, well, our world is real and deserve respect. I have three words for you. Blue shirt guy. BSG is leveling up and at a record pace by playing the hero. It's got people all over the world asking, 
Just who is this guy? We non-player characters are real. We deserve respect. He looks like an NPC, but he's running around leveling up crazy fast by being the freaking good guy. So this is a place where I think uh, this other movie, Free Guy, actually gets things more philosophically right, in my view, than The Matrix, that tends to take the view that what goes on inside a simulation is not real. Well, there is this idea called the it from bit hypothesis, and mm-hmm. you explore this in the book, and I'll probably butcher this, but I'll do my best <laughs> to summarize it for listeners. I mean, it, it's an idea that kind of upends the standard Newtonian picture of the world as this thing made up of physical objects. And the basic idea is that what we call physical reality is really just the result of bits of information. And when you get down to it, it's all just information. And if that's true, it does seem to follow that if the world isn't really physical, if it really is just information, then the idea that the world is a simulation or some kind of computer program does seem way more plausible. I mean, maybe even probable, right? Yeah, that was actually one of the main arguments I tried to mount in the book is to say that basically the simulation hypothesis, the idea that we're in a computer simulation is on a par with or maybe equivalent to this it from bit idea in physics, that basically all the physical entities we know and love, cells, molecules, atoms, quarks, they're all grounded in an underlying level of bits, a uh, a computational level of digital physics, if you like. And uh, you might have thought, ah, digital physics, that's not real. But that's not your average physicist's attitudes towards it. Digital physics is just as real as analog physics. It's just another structure that could be underlying reality. So yeah, the it from bit idea, it's not a world where nothing is real. So then I want to argue, well, we should say the same for the simulation hypothesis too. If it turns out we are living in a simulation, then it turns out underneath the cells and atoms and molecules and quarks that we know about is a level of the interplay of bits, perhaps running on a computer in the next universe up, perhaps with further levels underneath that. There's the possibility of what I call the it from bit from it hypothesis, where you know the interplay of objects at one level, bits at the next, and who knows how many levels that might go on. But yeah, this kind of goes along with the general point, which is the more you look at contemporary physics, the more it makes the physical world look somewhat more intangible and abstract than we might have thought. It's not that world of solid billiard balls out there and in space. Relativity, quantum mechanics, string theory, it from bit, they all tend to lead us away from that intuitive idea towards a world where, you might say, towards a situation where physical reality starts to look a little bit more like virtual reality. It's kind of exciting to imagine a future where the lines between virtual worlds and physical reality disappear. But that also worries me. Are we heading toward a future where we abandon our shared physical reality for more exotic virtual ones? I'll float that worry to David Chalmers after one last short break. So, you know, when people ask me what kind of dystopia I think is most likely, I, I don't say it's some kind of fascist or, or totalitarian dictatorship. I think it's a VR dystopia. I, I think it's a world in which the vast majority of our time and lives is consumed by 
virtual brave new world style diversions and entertainments. What do you say to those concerns? Do you think they're misguided? Because you seem a little more sanguine than I am about the increasing role of virtual worlds in our lives. Yeah, I guess my view is neither utopian nor dystopian about virtual reality. My view is roughly just that it's going to be as meaningful as physical reality with as wide a range of possible experiences and outcomes as physical reality. And physical reality can be, you know, a lot of the time it's awful, it's dystopian, occasionally it's wonderful, maybe it's got prospects for a utopia. If so, I'd say the same for virtual reality. It could be wonderful, it could be awful. And it's easy to see all kinds of ways in which it can uh, potentially go wrong. You know, one is the, the model where virtual realities are entirely run by corporations that dominate our lives. Uh, they're basically going to be the gods of these virtual worlds, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. Do we really want corporations in that role? I don't think so. But yeah, another possible dystopia is the one you mentioned, where it's all escapism and diversions, and we're just living out our life as a form of entertainment. Well, I think that could equally happen in a physical world if somehow you know all the important labor is taken over, say, by AIs and then humans may find themselves with nothing much on their hands but leisure and entertainment. And yeah, that has dystopian potential, but I don't think that's especially tied to VR. And the, the model of virtual worlds that I have in mind is much more one where, you know, we're still trying to build our lives. We're still trying to build communities. We're still trying to build society in the best possible way. There'll probably still be oppression. There'll still be struggle. There'll still be achievements. It's just all that could be going on in a virtual world. Whether we'll end up in more like the utopia or the dystopia, I have no idea. I, you know, I mean, you mentioned companies, the role of companies, and you have something like Facebook, which is kind of the new frontier for companies exploiting mm -hmm. us for more and more of our data, which they're already very good at extracting, you know, in order to sell ads and make money. Do these corporations and their motives concern you moving forward? Yeah, very much, very much. I mean, I'm not, I, I should say give a disclaimer, which is I'm not primarily a you know social, political philosopher, and any thoughts I have in this domain, I think, should be regarded as naive and taken with a, uh, with a grain of salt. But I think there are just obvious dangers and concerns towards corporations dominating virtual space. Yeah. I mean, this metaverse idea put forward originally by Neil Stevenson in a uh, science fiction novel, 92, was itself a kind of dystopia. Various people seized on its utopian potential in the meantime, but now we've suddenly had this corporate branding of the idea where you know, Facebook is renaming itself Meta after the metaverse. And it does raise the possibility, yeah, if virtual worlds are dominated by and created by corporations, if we have Apple reality and Meta or Facebook reality and Google reality, then, um, yeah, you think the worries you have right now about social media are concerning? You think privacy is a concern with social media? You think manipulation is a concern? Yeah, well, once those corporations are basically controlling our entire worlds, at least in the virtual space, then those concerns are just going to be squared or cubed. So I very much hope there are going to be models for the development of the so-called metaverse, where, yeah, maybe corporations may have their own corners yeah. of the metaverse, but where the metaverse itself, you know, the underlying space of virtual worlds is something more like the internet, something which transcends you know, any particular corporate ownership and which has a whole lot of room for user-owned and user-run worlds, experimentation with new forms of society and new forms of government, you know, 
the philosopher Robert Nozick talked about a meta-utopia, which no single world is a utopia, but we had many different worlds and many different models of government where people could choose the world they wanted to be associated with. I think, you know, this reality plus idea of, of you know, multiple virtual worlds at least opens you know, interesting possibilities in the direction of that kind of meta-utopia. Yeah, I mean, the social and political questions are almost separate. You know, I, I think about that a lot. It worries me a lot because we have, we have institutions that were designed and conceived in a very different world, and the technologies are developing way faster than culture and law can. And that's a problem. Uh, but, you know, taking this back to the more individual level, Look, a robust virtual world as a supplement to the physical world is fine by me. I guess part of my worry is that, and I'm curious what you think, if we make it too easy to turn inward, if we make it too easy to avoid the risk of living, the demands of living, and give people an option to stay in their own heads, in their own homes all the time, I just, that feels, I'm just not sure we'll handle that well. That does not seem like a good positive development. I don't know. Does that something that worries you? I mean, there's a couple of different contrasts you could be invoking here. One is sort of individual versus social, just mostly hanging out by yourself versus interacting with a lot of others. And I don't know, I think that probably crosscuts physical versus virtual. Many virtual worlds right now are extremely social. That's, you know, their main purpose, something like Second Life, for example, is basically for the development of new social communities or even video games. There are some people who are stuck in their homes in the physical world, aging people or disabled people and so on who don't have this access to a great physical reality. But then through virtual reality, find they've got there's all kinds of new possibilities, including for being part of communities in a way they're not part of in the, the physical world. So I think that goes both ways. Uh, virtual worlds could well be very, very social. There's also the whole inside versus outside question. You're going out of doors. I mean, it's already the case that most of us spend most of our life indoors. I don't know about you, but I certainly I certainly do. I appreciate the outdoors, but it's not where I am most of the yeah. time. I don't know. I suspect in any remotely short-term future, we're not going to be in VR any more than we are indoors. Just as we spend a certain amount of time outdoors, we'll spend a fair amount of time in, in physical reality too. But I'm not sure that I see the dystopia and say spending 12 hours a day in VR long-term future where we upload ourselves to VR. Maybe that's a whole different matter. That's a different issues come up there. Maybe the question I'm inching my way towards here is what can a virtual world never give us? You know, I'm thinking of the differences between a relationship we might have with someone in the physical world. Instinctively, I want to say the real world, but I'll be careful there. <laughs> a relationship we have with someone in the physical world versus a relationship we have with someone virtually or a virtual person in a simulated world. I mean, what's the difference between those relationships? If the feelings we have are just as real, is there a difference at all in your mind? Yeah, well, certainly in the short term, look, in the next technology coming in the next 50, 100 years, there's you know, massive differences, uh, not least in the role of the body. You know, we're not embodied in virtual reality. We have avatars and so on, but they're very primitive compared to a physical body, we don't have anything like the sense of a virtual body, the way we have a sense of our physical body. So, you know, so interpersonal interaction, touch, sex, you know, it's just gonna be absolute pale shadow of the original. I mean, there are people working on forms of sex in virtual worlds. There's a whole teledildonics industry for, you know, interactions of 
physical devices and virtual actions, but I don't think anyone's claiming that this is really comparable to the kind of sex, the kind of interaction you have with physical bodies in a physical world. On the other hand, oh, I mean, other relevant differences are birth and death. You know, <laughs> people are born in the physical world. People die in the uh, in the physical world. There's not, at the moment at least, there's not really any serious analog to birth in a virtual world or death in a virtual world. And those are things that give our lives and give relationships a whole lot of meaning. That said, you know, if you want to think about a long-term future where, for example, in a couple of centuries, um, it becomes possible to upload ourselves, you know, to a computer, maybe gradually transition from being fully biological to being fully digital and to be ourselves virtual creatures in a virtual universe, then we could get to the point where, yeah, the experience of a relationship in that virtual world, including the various physical elements, could be more or less on a par with the experience in a physical world. Maybe, actually, maybe we discover there's whole new forms of experience that become possible in VR, where you can violate laws of physics, where uh, your brain might be manipulated in all kinds of new ways to have new forms of experience. So, you know, there's the possibility there that virtual worlds could end up transcending physical worlds, at least in some respects. Now, maybe there's still going to be some sense, at least in some people, a sense of, you know, well, there's something special about being in the physical world. And maybe there'll be people who choose never to fully make a transition to virtual reality. And just as there are people now who want to be in nature and choose not to move into cities and so on, I think that'll be a choice to be respected. But in the long term, probably the other choice should be respected too. Yeah. You know, I've... I guess I've come to believe that our separation from the natural world is something like a civilizational crisis. If we become more separated from the physical world, more and more, do you think that exasperates our inability to solve material problems in the material world, like you know, the climate crisis, for instance? I guess my worry is that even if you're right about reality and its constituents, the more disconnected we are from the natural environment, I worry the more alien it will become, the more disinvested we'll be in it. And that seems unsustainable to me. Is this something that you think about much at all or is this just kind of outside of your purview of concerns? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hear this concern from people a lot. I'm just not sure I exactly understand it. I mean, I guess the question is why does the mere fact that you know, say virtual reality has become important to us mean that physical reality has to become unimportant to us. In general, we're capable of thinking about and caring about more than one thing at once. And we have a work life that matters to us and a family life that matters to us and a social life that matters to us. And we can be worried about the climate and we can be worried about nuclear technology and we can be thinking about AI and we can be thinking about virtual reality. I mean, there's a lot of problems in the world to think about. So I don't know, what is it? You think this is something which is already happening? We're basically getting alienated from nature already by our focus on technology. Well, I guess what I'm saying is I think the more and more of our lives that become virtual, I think the more it sort of feeds the illusion that we are separate from the physical world. And that seems you know, problematic. It accelerates our trajectory along a path that will be more likely, not less likely, to maybe destroy the ecological systems on which we depend because we're under the illusion that we're not dependent on them anymore because at least in the immediate worlds we live in, we don't appear to be. But the technologies we're creating, the sorts of things we're doing in the world may be destructive, but it may be sufficiently removed from our attention that we don't care. I see. Yeah, okay. That's certainly a way things can go badly wrong to uh, you know destroy 
obviously we're exploiting physical reality already for all kinds of purposes, and it could get to the level where it basically was all taken over and turned into computronium, as it were, to, uh, to run our, our digital lives. So this is certainly, I think, an outcome that needs to be avoided. I suspect it's an outcome which one would worry about with or without virtual worlds. Either way, there's going to be a lot of forces towards developing a whole lot of technology. Maybe if we're spending most of our time in virtual worlds, that does raise the prospect that somehow this is out of sight and out of mind and harder to focus on. Is that your worry? Well, let me get at it another way. You just use the word worlds, plural. Yeah. And that's instructive, I think, right? That's part of the problem here, right? If we're living in a world in which things can be real only to certain people at certain times because we're all kind of living in our own virtual spaces, don't you think that invites a very dangerous, perhaps disassociation with something like a consensus truth or a consensus objective truth, or if we're all inhabiting our own fragmented worlds, that seems like a barrier to cooperation, the sorts of cooperation we would need in order to get things done collectively, right? I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, there is obviously the danger of fragmentation, which is already very yeah. real. I'm not sure that I see the kind of fragmentation you would get from virtual worlds as being totally different from the kind of fragmentation we get from there being, say, a whole lot of different countries with a whole lot of people and different yeah. communities where I guess we find, yes, fragmentation is an issue. It's hard for different countries to work together, but there are also ways of making that happen. And there are projects which span multiple countries. I guess I could I would could easily imagine that in a society where virtual worlds played a big role, we'd have that kind of fragmentation. We'd have people with strong immediate concerns for what's going on around them. But I'd like to think at least in a more ideal society, they'd also be concerned for the system as a whole. And okay, maybe the 21st century is teaching us that that's a bit of an optimistic ideal that, yeah, nationalism <laughs> comes to dominate and our local concerns come to dominate global concerns. But if so, that's a problem with or without virtual worlds. Maybe virtual worlds could make it worse, but I don't know. They'd also maybe open up the possibility for communication and movement between virtual worlds in a way that is much harder in the physical world? Well, that was the hope, right? I mean, you know, that was the dream of the, you know, techno-utopians, right? In like the early 90s and late 80s, this was the idea that the internet and the online world would be a bridge to solidarity, or at least would be a way to form new communities, bigger communities. But in the end, it ended up becoming a source of atomization and polarization and all these sorts of problems that we're kind of dealing with now. I guess in a way, my own philosophical view of these matters actually raises the stakes because I say, you know, what goes on in virtual worlds really is genuinely meaningful. When good things happen, they're really good. When bad things happen, they're really bad. That makes it more meaningful, maybe all the more important to get things right in virtual worlds. But I guess it's not obvious to me, for example, in the case of the internet, yeah, the internet has caused all kinds of serious problems and has caused all kinds of wonderful new possibilities at the same time. There are global communities that make things happen as well as fragmentation into these local communities that cause all these problems. So I guess my instinct about virtual worlds is they'll have the same kind of range. They'll bring about some distinctively wonderful things and some distinctively awful things. But yeah, I think we absolutely need to be thinking very hard about these things right now. And think of this just as part of a very long project of trying to come to grips with these environments because they are going to play an increasingly large role in our lives. So yeah, thinking about it ahead of time is probably a very good idea. Okay, let me close this out with a preposterously unfair, huge question, if you don't mind. Sure. 
what do you think happens when we die? Do you think consciousness survives the death of the body? Is that even conceivable? My default hypothesis is that when I die, I will cease to exist. My conscious self will go out of existence. Maybe if certain hypotheses about consciousness are right, if you know if every biological system has some degree of consciousness, maybe who's to say there could be little fragments of consciousness associated with what goes on after my death. But I'm inclined to say that I will be gone. It's partly because I don't really believe in this non-physical soul, which is separable from the physical brain and body, even if I think consciousness is more than the brain and body, but at least as far as I can tell, it's tied to it. That said, thinking about, say, the simulation hypothesis, I have some different ways of thinking about life after death. For example, maybe if we're all bits of code inside the simulation, then there's a possibility that upon physical death inside the simulation, that code could be lifted up by the simulators and moved to some other virtual world or some other portion of the simulation. And who's to say that couldn't qualify as some kind of, uh, as some kind of life after death? I mean, boy, there's ways you can imagine it setting up where, uh, say, <laughs> the simulators decide that only if they will upload all and only the creatures who worship them as simulators <laughs> during the life of the simulation. And I don't think that would be a very ethical way to be a, to be a simulator, yeah. but that would be one form of life after death. So maybe thinking about the simulation idea makes me somewhat more open to the idea that perhaps ourselves could have some existence that goes beyond the mere existence of this physical body, yeah. although it may still be tethered to something quasi-physical in the next universe up. So I think about that as a somewhat more naturalistic form of life after death that even someone who's not traditionally religious could still be open to. Is it maybe possible that individual consciousness upon bodily death just melts into some higher form of consciousness and, and that is a kind of life after death, even though the experience of, of being a self will have disappeared, but it is a kind of evolution into another kind of consciousness. It's just a dissolved higher form. Yeah, and some of my wilder and more speculative moments and thinking about consciousness and reality, I occasionally found myself sympathetic with the idea that, you know, the whole universe could be conscious. There could be a level of consciousness associated with everything in the universe, but maybe most fundamentally with the universe as a whole. People call this cosmopsychism. Mm. And then the question is, well, how do I relate to this universal mind and there's all kinds of different ways this could go. Um, I could be part of it. I could be the universal mind uh, somehow, but somehow in this view, yeah, local bits of consciousness would be blips on top of the universal mind. And then presumably on death, then we melt back into the uh, universal mind. Is that exactly a form of survival after death? I don't know. Maybe this very person would not exist, but maybe there's some sense in which my consciousness could end up being continuous with the consciousness of the universe. Yeah, survival may be the wrong word, but if that's true, it certainly takes the sting out of death or the fear out of gives death. gives you a bit more continuity with the, uh, I guess, the past and the future and consciousness elsewhere in the world. I mean, survival would be nice, but if we can't have survival, this would at least <laughs> be something. Well, on that note, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate you taking the time. David Chalmers, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, I enjoyed the conversation.
Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.